I'm very thankful to say that I have never spent a single night in jail. I hope I never shall. But in recent weeks, we have seen interviewed young men who were shot down or otherwise captured on the ground in Iraq. We first saw them on television when it appeared, in one case especially, that we found out later he'd inflicted a lot of the wounds upon himself to avoid being put on television. But it appeared that they had been brutalized and beaten. And they actually have special organizations in all the services that teach classes to young men who will be exposed to danger in the armed forces who might run the risk of becoming captive, putting together all they've learned from World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and it has to do with the psychology of how to survive in a time of captivity, how to keep your sanity, how to avoid just going completely berserk. The notion in the private sector is generally the man who begins to cooperate, who will come on television and say, my nation should not be attacking the peace-loving Iraqi people, is somehow traitorous. That what he should do is to staunchly refuse to say one word except my name, my serial number, and that's it, according to the Geneva Convention. Well, they've revised that in recent years because they know that the tortures, and I won't go into that, it's too horrible to contemplate, that human beings can inflict upon other human beings, can literally drive them insane, and that today there is not merely the threat of human physical brutality and torture and pain, but there is also the potential of drug ingestion to the point that they can put drugs into a human being that will make him relate everything that is on his mind that's ever been on his mind. He will tell his entire life story and that means any CIA agent that knows the names and telephone numbers of agents all over Europe will divulge it freely, as they say, sing like a bird, because of the drugs. So when these people teach individuals who perhaps might become captives of an enemy, they teach them how to survive, how to maintain their sanity. There's a young captain in the Air Force who spent seven years as a prisoner of the North Vietnamese in Hanoi Hilton and elsewhere who has gone around the country making his living these last many years in giving speeches about how he survived in captivity and talking about the day of his release. Continually he said what stood him in good stead was his faith. It was his belief in God, his belief in country, his belief in his family. And deep down inside himself, he said, somehow I'm going to survive. I'm going to get through this. God is going to help me. And he acknowledged that if he had not had the faith he had in God, if he had not had the patriotism and the staunch belief that he was there for a good cause and was a citizen of a great country, if he had not had the support because he could envision his family members on their knees praying for him, even though he could not really hear from them or have any contact with them one way or another, but because he knew they loved him and he loved them, he wanted to return to them, to his wife and to his children. Continually, he was able to survive, to pass the time by playing little mental games. He once was able to fashion a little ball out of some substance and simply to continually bounce it against the wall. They devised a system of Morse code of tapping upon the wall to communicate with other prisoners down the hallway. 
and he was measuring his life in terms of little marks that he would make in secret places in his cell. In this one case, this man was actually for many, many months stretched out on a board with his hand shackled above him and his leg shackled in place. And it was only on one occasion when he was eating and he was able to secrete a little portion of metal somehow in his garments and to fashion a kind of a crude key to unshackle his arms and his legs so he could sleep at night. And he told that story. Many of you saw the documentaries, I suppose, at the end of World War II of scarecrow-like creatures who came weeping and clutching the arms and the legs and the ankles of American GIs who opened some of Hitler's prison camps. At the tears flowing down their cheeks of these 89-pound men and women who had been relieved, released from captivity, who had been in Auschwitz or Dachau or Belsen or Buchenwald. I've never been in captivity. I've never been restrained. I have never been in a situation where I couldn't go where I wanted to go. But I have been in slavery. I have been in slavery. I remember in many cases what some of that slavery was like. And I suppose in some ways to this day that I do not recognize, I may still be to some extent or another in slavery. It was pointed out in the sermonette, and I'll turn back to the 13th chapter, back to this to get just one more point on that, the real meaning of the Passover and the very beautiful analogies that we see in the Word of God, as opposed to eggs and rabbits and hot cross buns. We see a nation of slaves in abject slavery. They were, in the case of the men and the women, out there in the fields, stomping around with their feet in troughs of mud and straw, making bricks. Some of the women were babysitters. They were maids and housekeepers. They were day laborers. They were servants doing whatever the Egyptian taskmasters told them to do. They were forced labor in the same way that millions of Jews from Poland and nations all over Europe were forced laborers in Hitler's war machine. Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. My Bible has a little number one. I look in the margin. It says slavery. That's exactly what it means. Bondage, a bondservant, or being actually in slavery. For by strength of hand the Eternal brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and many of you are familiar with this. I'll turn to it and get portions of it. We are told that these great events that occurred at the time of the Exodus happened as an example for us who live in this last time upon whom the ends of the world are come. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud, that is, the cloud of God's protection that concealed them from the pursuing armies of Pharaoh, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, merely a little bit of typology there, a shadowy picture or an example. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, not only the word of God and what he taught them, but the manna that came down by a miracle. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? Again, the analogy of God's truth, God's law, of what God told them, but also literal water that came out from a rock when Moses went and struck the rock and God gave them gushing clear water to drink. 
for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital letter R, look at Deuteronomy 32 and many of the places in the Bible where Christ is the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day 23,000. Interesting, that's the same number of Americans that are killed by gunshot wounds every year in the United States. And 23,000 fell in one plague from God because of that sin. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither complain, carp, gripe, murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All that happened in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a type of your life from the baptismal pool until the time of the second coming of Christ. There are many interesting typical examples in the story of the Exodus, Egypt itself is a type of sin, of slavery, and of bondage. Pharaoh is a type of Satan the devil. Janus and Jane Breeze are a type of the beast and the false prophet. Moses and Aaron are a type of the two witnesses. Moses, on the one hand, is a type of God the Father when he gives the law on the mount. On another hand, as an intercessor, an intermediary between God and the people, and as God's spokesman, he is a type of Christ. Aaron is actually a shadowy type of Christ as well as the progenitor and eponymous ancestor of the Levitical priesthood. We see the type of escaping from Egypt when God is breaking the economic and military back of the greatest nation of the time, Satan the devil having his people in his clutches, and God breaking Satan's hold on his people and giving them liberty or freedom and allowing them to come out of slavery. The Red Sea is a type of baptism. The wilderness was called sin, the wilderness of sin, and they were at the foot of a mountain called Sin Ai or Sinai. And wandering in that wilderness for 40 years, 40 is a type or a number of testing, of trial. And for 40 years of testing or trial, they depended upon their God for sustenance daily, giving them manna from heaven for an entire 40-year period, and God providing miracle after miracle. Their shoe leather did not wear out. They saw the miracle every night of the flames of fire above the tabernacle, every day of the huge big black cloud over the door of the tabernacle. They saw miracle after miracle, providing them water, healing them. They also saw miracles that punished and destroyed some of them for 40 solid years. Many types, many shadowy examples. Let me ask you this. Have you already come all the way out of slavery? No, some of you haven't. Some of you sitting in this room still are abject slaves to a little white cylindrical object or to little kind of shredded up pieces of a weed that is moist and smells and tastes so good that you have in a little round capsule that makes a familiar kind of a round shape on the Levi pocket that you see in all the school ads where they try to make it look very macho. Why it looks macho to a young girl, 16, 17, for a man to have black spit ripping out of both sides of his eyes, I have the faintest idea. Uh, why that looks macho for a man to go chawing like that with that junk in his teeth, and, 
you know, big old yellow slimy gout of gobby spit mixed with tobacco splattered on the floor. I'll never for the life of me understand why a man on a horse spitting skull looks like somebody you gals ought to desire. Somebody explain it to me. Now, I'm not talking about something I don't know anything about. Because I was an abject slave, and I lied, I misrepresented, I snuck around, I tried to deceive my little wife, who was trying to tell me that my father insisted and the church insisted, and to keep my job, I'd better get in line and quit this disgusting habit of smoking. It was painful for me to start, very difficult. I absolutely fell down to the curb one time and tried to stop the world from spinning when they tell, told me that I wasn't inhaling, and I said, yes, I am, <gasps> and then got so dizzy that I didn't know where, where I was. But I persisted, and I wanted to look older than I was. You imagine a little kid about 5'2", 14 years of age, sitting there puffing on a cigarette, thinking he looks like a World War II veteran fresh back from the wars. Because, you know, a lot of us, especially in those agonizing days when we are 13, 14, 16, 17, we live in a long hall of mirrors. Remember how painful it was? You can sit in class and you think maybe little Gloria is mad at you. You're not sure. And so you play the hurt, lonely, abandoned little boy all the rest of that day. You sit there and you just kind of look glum. And I think she's going to notice me after a while. It's going to break her heart when she looks at my little chin over here trembling. She's going to say, oh, I bet I hurt Teddy's feelings. You sit there and all day you play this mood. You, you throw yourself into this mood because you want Gloria to notice you feel bad. And she made you feel bad. I'll make her sorry. I'll kill myself. That'll then she'll be sorry. And I'll come back and I'll watch her there at my funeral. I'll kill myself and Gloria's going to be standing there crying, and boy, I'll get her, I'll get even with her. It's miserable walking all of your life in a hallway of mirrors, kind of pretending to be somebody you are not. It is miserable to be a slave to a little white cylindrical object and to bow down before it and say, Oh, great Dagon of the weed patch, oh, great huge cigarette, how I adore thee, how I lust after thee, how I must have thee. Thou art my master and my boss. I am your quivering slave. You tell me, drag on me, lip me real good, stick me in your mouth, and fill your lungs with tars and uh, carcinogenics and nicotine and make it feel good all the way to the tips of your toes and fingers. I'll show you who's boss. One time I actually did. We did a kind of, not a computer model, but we figured up. Uh, Al Portuner and I and a bunch of us on a sermon one occasion tried to figure the exact diameter of a cigarette. Then we took that by the number of smokers in Los Angeles and the number they, they smoked every day, and we came up with a cigarette that was about as big around as this room. And then we set fire to it and wheeled up some giant fans and sucked on it and tried to figure the massive cloud of smoke that was going up in the air just from that one huge cigarette. And it was a pollution problem, I'll guarantee you. Now, if that were the worst of our sins, probably God would not be concerned about it. I don't want to portray cigarette smoking as the very worst of all sins. The reason I talk about it as I do is because it had such a grip on me and that I know that there are people way up in their 70s and 80s that 
would love to get rid of it and can't. And people who are actually dying of diseases that have destroyed their livers, destroyed their lungs. When I see on documentaries an individual lying in a hospital, half of his lung is already gone, and he's actually had a tracheotomy and can no longer, because of cancer of the throat, even breathe through his own mouth and throat. And here is a hole in his chest, and the doctor comes up and gently and tenderly inserts a cigarette so the guy can expand his lungs but not through his nose and emit smoke out of that hole. And we know that he's only got X number of days or weeks and then he's going to die. As a matter of fact, without talking about the situation, I know very closely an individual who is looking at that very occurrence staring him in the face. And when a loved one said something about, oh, I, I wish you could just get rid of the cigarettes, he said, please, you know it's way too late for that. So, okay, some of you think it's a small sin. All right, sure, it's a small sin. But the reason I talk about it is because it's one that had a grip on me for eight solid years. And that when it came time for me to really get the motivation to actually want to kick the habit, I found out what slavery is all about. I was a whipped cur. I was a crawling slave. I was doing the bidding of something that had a grip on me that I could not break. So I understand. I've always had understanding about people who were in the grips of a habit. Drugs must be infinitely worse than what I went through with smoking, trying to break the smoking habit. They say that a person who tries crack is hooked instantly with that one rush that I guess is like things we don't even want to talk about beyond, uh, you know, ten times over the greatest physical sensation a person can ever experience. Don't ever get excited about it and try it, because you will become its slave if you ingest that rotten drug into your body just once. A lot of us are slaves to a lot of other things. Let's go back to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment. Solomon was a man of wisdom, but you know that wisdom didn't uh, apparently stay with him all of his life, because when he got quite elderly, he began making an incredible number of mistakes and in his old age built hundreds of idolatrous little tempietos for his many, many women and actually abandoned much of what he knew earlier in life. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There is a vanity of youth. A vanity of the prowess, the athleticism, the sinewy strength, the boundless energy, the fantasies, the hopes, and the dreams, the idea that you are impervious to any kind of physical pain or suffering, that you're impervious from every disease, which is why so many hundreds of thousands of youngsters take up drugs and smoking, that somehow you can beat the game. There is a vanity of youth. I remember how painful it was. The vanity at age 13 of going up to the teen canteen and trying to appear much older than I was. The problems that we go through with all the various hang-ups that we have, teenage can be a very painful time. There's a vanity of ignorance. I have a letter now that I'm trying to answer in some detail. It was quite interesting, as I've said. 
Only in the field of religion can the absolutely uninformed claim erudition, but many people who get into religion begin to think, I am special in God's sight, and therefore I know something nobody else knows. I was informed in a particular letter recently, a lot of people have said things sort of like this recently, including a couple of people who published some prophetic statements to their mailing lists that over 50,000 Americans were going to die in the sands of Iraq. Well, this letter confidently told me that all of our army was going to be wiped out and that the great Iran was going to link together with Germany and Japan and attack the United States and Great Britain. Furthermore, she said, I'm very worried about those airplanes over there in Iran. I wasn't a bit worried about them because the minute I heard from a top Russian general that Saddam Hussein had executed his two top Air Force generals in the second day of the war because of the poor performance of his Air Force, and the very next day they got a hundred and some aircraft in little increments of twos and threes fleeing to Iran, and the first arrivals were shot down because they hadn't told anybody they were coming, and then I found out most of them are Mirage 1s and the rest of them are Sukhoi 22 fitters. Fitter sounds like you're mispronouncing fighter. It isn't. That's the NATO designation of the aircraft. And they are no match whatsoever for an F-14 Tomcat or an F-15 Eagle or an F-16 or anything else in our arsenal. But this lady was very worried, very nervous about these aircraft. I wasn't. The Air Force wasn't. The Navy wasn't. The Iranians sure weren't because they're going to hang on to them knowing nothing about logistics or supply and whether they took off with a full load of armaments or not, and anything at all about their support mechanisms and the tremendous amount of maintenance that these aircraft require, whether or not they'd even be able to mount an assault out of there, knowing nothing about the E-6As, the intruders, about the AWACS, about the fact that there wouldn't be a Piper Cub or an L-3 that could take off from any strip in the entirety of Iran that wasn't immediately leaping to life on a great big radar screen in, an, in a United States airborne AWACS or Navy intruder over there somewhere. The poor dear is trying to write me to give me a big prophetic message that she's really worried about those aircraft and how Iran's going to attack the United States. So there are people who can come to understand a certain amount of God's truth and can dive over into a huge, big, bottomless pit, swimming with a word called vanity. Why? Why do some of us need to have some special idea from God that sort of jacks us up into the air way above all of our fellows, when in fact we probably don't know what we're talking about? Oh, you ought to read some of my mail. It, it really gets entertaining sometimes. Now, the trouble is that I feel like I've got to answer these things and handle it with kid gloves and try to calm the people down, not get them angry at me. And that's pretty tough. I'll tell you, that's pretty tough sometimes. But I'm answering the letter at the present time, and I will send her an answer. There's the vanity of old age. Just because I have gray hair doesn't mean I know everything there is to know. Same goes for all the rest of you gray-haired people out there. Now, I couldn't say that when I had black hair, but now that i got thinning gray hair and little rosy bald spots beginning to show up, I can talk to you older gray-haired people and tell you that we are not as smart as we think we are. And there's nothing wrong with the word old. We don't need to say, if people come up and greet me and say, I'm 86 years young. I've had people tell me that time and time again. No, you're not young. You're old. I'm old, and I'm getting older by the moment. 
And when I consider the alternative, that's no problem to me. I actually hope to be standing here preaching to you people, if God allows time to go on, when I am 93. And when I am, I'll really begin to bear down, too. If I get to be 93, you better look out, I'll tell you that. No, I'm just kidding now. That I revert. I'm just having fun. I'm sorry. In verse 12 of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is written from a human, mundane, carnal point of view, from a short lifespan of a man, saying that if this is all there is, then it's not worth it. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Solomon became virtually a candidate for suicide, and we will see some of the great things he did. And I'll tell you, I wish we could get some of the people that worked with him out to our grounds and would give us the kind of, of help that I'm sure Solomon had, because, boy, did he ever build Jerusalem to be a garden spot. He says in the second chapter, I said in my heart, Come on now, and I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. We don't know exactly what he means by this, but perhaps it was a good joke-telling session. Maybe it was mimicry. Maybe it was... Just entertainment of singers and dancers, which he says later he also did. And behold, this is all vanity. That is, it is a useless pursuit after a handful of wind, is the actual meaning of the term vanity. I said, of laughter it is mad, and of mirth, what does it do for me? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. And, that is, that he didn't want to drink to the point that he became drunk or out of control of himself, but just to feel mellowed out and kind of enjoy a few glasses of wine. And to lay hold on folly, act like an idiot, you know, dancing around, making funny noises, and, and acting out animal parts or whatever. Till I might see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do unto the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses. Now some of us have had the glorious opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to build, to plan, design, and to build our own brand new home. Not many, but some few. The American dream. Nothing is more exciting than a husband and a wife poring over plans together, deciding how they want the kitchen, how the cabinet ought to look, the kind of a master bedroom, the view, the way they'll site the house. And if they have the money and they can do it to fulfill that wonderful American dream of actually building a house. This is not a small thing. When somebody becomes involved in a project of building a home, that's a big project. That'll eat you alive. That'll take up an awful lot of your time. It can also be something which can overwhelm you, something which can become a taskmaster, something that can ruin you spiritually, something that if you don't handle it correctly with patience, with understanding, with gratitude toward God, knowing that there are going to be a lot of imperfections, knowing that you're going to have problems with subcontractors that say they'll be there on Tuesday and don't show up until the following Monday, if then, knowing that people are going to lie to you, they're going to cheat you, you're going to have headache after headache, you're going to be on the telephone, people are going to uh, treat you with contempt and try to cut corners and They'll be trying to deliver inferior materials, and they'll produce inferior workmanship. It's a headache 
Anybody who's been in the building profession can tell you, now he'll omit himself, but he can tell you that practically every subcontractor he ever met is a rotten liar. I'm sorry to say that. I hope there aren't any subcontractors in this room. And if you are, you're a member of God's church, so you're definitely an exception. But ask Benny Sharp. Benny Sharp built his house. Ask my son Mark. He built his house. And they dealt with a lot of subcontractors. And I'll guarantee you, they don't always tell you the truth. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. Anything prettier than a garden? How many of you are gardeners? Any of you gardeners? Any of you green thumbs out there? I don't anymore, but oh, did I have a garden when we lived in California. In the first couple of years, I had a great garden here. And I've grown, I guess, just about every vegetable there is in the United States at one time or another. And I'll tell you, that's work. And you've got to get out there and get after it. My back won't let me garden anymore. I'm kind of glad, frankly. <laughs> but you get out there in a garden, and uh, you've got about 14 different varieties of vegetables, and it's a taskmaster. It'll keep you out there. It'll make you work. My father-in-law, Mr. Roy Hammer, used to frustrate Mrs. Hammer to death. We'd be there with the whole family and ready to sit down to a big dinner, and she'd be calling, Roy! He's out there in the garden. All you can see is rear end bent over out there doing something in the garden. I'll be right there. About another hour later, everything's getting cold. Roy! He just could not leave that garden as long as there was one weed in sight. So I know that when you plant a garden, it's work. And orchards. Is anything more beautiful than driving along some of these orchards of beautiful fruit trees like peaches here in East Texas? I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made pools of water to water there with the wood that brings forth trees. That means little, you know, running pools and all kinds of irrigation canals and how beautiful it can be. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. So he was a patriarchal figure with a large family and servants' quarters, and the servants themselves had large families. I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings into the provinces, and that can be anything from fabulous golden tapestries to the finest porcelains to a, a Russian hand-painted egg. It can be fabulous silks, and it can be fabrics and hand-carved ivory and things of absolute priceless treasure. I got me men singers and women singers. I miss the opportunity once in a while to go to a concert. Uh, by the way, I think Bronson James is singing in the one that is going to be coming up fairly soon, isn't it? Is it Cole Porter this year in uh, Tyler? And they're announcing it now, and I think in the next few weeks at some time there's to be this Tyler Chorale, and Bronson James has a leading role in it. And all of you that want to go to Caldwell Auditorium, I really heart heartily endorse that. It's a very wonderful experience, and Bronson did a marvelous job last year. Really professional. I couldn't believe how well he did last year. And if he's been practicing, and I assume he has, uh, he'll be in it again this year. And it can be so inspiring. You can sit there, like I want to get one video. They've got a video of the three greatest tenors who have ever lived, including Pavarotti, and the three of them are together. They're advertising it on television right now. That guy sings, and I've got to stop dead where I am. My voice chokes up. My hair stands on end. I get goosebumps. It's absolutely unbelievable the emotional experience you can have listening to a gorgeous chorale or a choir. Uh, you know, you, you probably don't, you're not into Christmas music, and I addressed that in one sermon, and I'm not either that much, but yet if I do hear on television the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing one of those Christmas hymns, i got to confess, I hope it's not illegal in God's sight, I stop and listen. 
because it is so absolutely moving and fantastic to hear that. Well, Solomon had all of these great choral groups. He said, the delights of the sons of men, which apparently the commentators mean his concubines. He didn't have to sneak off to the 7-Eleven and sneak a peek at the centerfold. He could have the girls in there doing whatever he wanted them to. That was Solomon, the king of Israel. And of musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of my labor. That was that temporary enjoyment he got out of it then and there. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. My father, in many ways, was a great man. He was a man who was literally used of God to build what in many written publications was described as a religious empire. Three college campuses, hundreds of local church congregations, maybe 150 or more thousand members, a budget of over $200 million per year. My father worked with landscape architects. He worked with designers and engineers, the largest ones in the world, Daniel Johnson, Mann, Mendenhall, Ekbo, Dean, and Williams, the landscape architects. If he wanted a huge, big sculpture or a piece of bronze, one was lowered by a helicopter in the formal gardens back of Ambassador Hall. It was named after my mother, the Loma D. Armstrong Academic Center that was added on to the back of it. My father flew around the world in a Gulfstream II and later a Gulfstream III. My father lived in a home that would probably cost to build two, three million dollars. He didn't own it. It was owned by the church. On his table, solid gold, salt cellars, beautiful solid gold ware. He ate off a cart prime rib with statesmen and consular officials and ambassadors and other people at his table. When my father died and I finally saw the disposition of his will, I was somewhat amazed, and I couldn't help but think of some of these scriptures, because my father had diamond studs and solid diamond cufflinks for his formal wear. He had a solid gold Patek Philippe and a solid gold Rolex. Go try to buy one of those and see what they cost. He had solid gold pens and pencils. He had not a lot of personal jewelry, but what he had was quality, and nearly always what he had he wore, except on a formal occasion he would change, and other than that, he had one light little wafer-thin silver kind of a watch with diamonds around the edge of it. So you've got to understand that I was a little bit mystified when I, as one of the remaining members of his family, together with my two sisters, read what the officials out there said was the sum total value of all of my father had labored for that he'd accumulated, and his personal estate, after all was settled, and the college owning the home and the goldware and all of that, all that my father had that was worth anything at all, personally, they said, was a value of $1,000. 
You know, it does make you think. It is true you can't take it with you. But what my father was able to take with him, God knows, and God has in his hands, and it was all up here and in here. And whatever value that was in God's sight, and I hope that most of it was precious, and I hope that in those remaining years and months of his life, whatever little bit that wasn't, my father was deeply repentant of, and that whatever thoughts he had toward me, and I have reason to believe what he said to my sisters from time to time, that there were still thoughts of love and kindness, but I think there were constraints upon him. I think there were political things around him. I think there were reasons that he didn't dare do certain things. I like to think that. So I would like to think that if there was treasure, it was not on his cuffs or in the studs in his shirt. It wasn't on his table in the form of goldware, but it was up here and it was in here. And that he was buried with that treasure, and that treasure will be resurrected in God's kingdom. Solomon had so much more than my father could ever have looked upon that there is simply no comparison. He said, I looked on all the works of my hands that wrought, and all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do that comes after the king, even that which has already been done? Then I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as far as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happened to them both, to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it will happen to me. And why was I then the more wise? I said in my heart, this, that is, this thought, this pursuit of some solution, is also vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Shortly before my father's death, he published a book entitled The Mystery of the Ages. Not very long after his death, that book was quietly shunted aside, even though it was tooted by those around him at the time that it was a book that would actually be on a shelf and would have practically the same validity as the Bible itself. One of the greatest books of all time, one of the greatest books ever written. How quickly! it was taken out of circulation and is no longer being sent to the people of the church. Solomon said, There is no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dies the wise man? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life. Solomon became a candidate for suicide in one sense. I don't think he contemplated it, but he said, Life was tedious to him. It was a bore because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and a vexation of the spirit. Vanity is the quintessential element that is at the core of the meaning of this day. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Leavening in bread is that which puffs it up, which brings about lightness. Leavening means, actually, levity. We hear the word levity or lightness, and it means to puff up. One of the greatest attributes of humankind is vanity. I have said, and I believe that it is accurate, that human nature consists of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. And I've put them in that order, perhaps arbitrarily. You might want to change it around and say it's greed first, and then it's jealousy, and then it's lust, and then it's vanity. But it's really all four in a very noxious way 
admixture. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he says he's got to write as under carnal. Now, they were convicted, but many of them weren't converted. Many were converted, many were not. They were members of God's church. They understood the truth. They had a great deal of wisdom and knowledge, but the way they acted didn't really measure up to the amount of understanding that God had given them. So let a man account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Here the Apostle Paul was constrained to defend himself continually before these people who were critical, who were griping and pointing the finger at Paul and the other apostles. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, which he was, or of man's judgment, the commentaries say of man's day or man's society, man's standards or values. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet, because I say that, that doesn't justify me. He that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then every man will have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up one against another, or for one on behalf of one against another. Partisan politics, party spirit, the desire to follow a man. As it says in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, there is no form nor comeliness that when we should see him, meaning Christ, we should desire him. God was not going to allow humankind to look up to or to worship a man because of the way he looked. There was going to be nothing physical that would be attractive about Jesus Christ. Only the character, only what he stood for, only what he said, only the message that he brought, only the sacrifice that he represented and that he underwent. So he writes that they might learn not to think of men above that which they ought to think, and that nobody be puffed up, inflated, filled with vanity, vain about somebody else. Who makes you differ from another? You ever play, how many of you ever play any kind of cards? I play cards. I'm putting my hand in the air. Do you ever play card games? Only three or four of you. Hmm, I thought there'd be a lot more card players than that. Oh, I see. You're sitting. Some of you got your hands in your pockets. You couldn't get it up in time. I think most of you played cards, haven't you, one time or another? Isn't it amazing when you play cards how you deal the cards, right? You got them face down, you deal the cards. And one guy sits there and he gets this slow grin on his face. Looks like that. Almost smug, you know, almost a smirk. Comes time to play. Have you ever played cards with people like Pinochle or Hearts or whatever? And you don't just put the card out there. It's your turn to take the trick. Bang! Slap that card down. Then you look out there like, showed you, didn't I? Isn't it amazing? I mean, you're just one person at a table, and they deal the cards, and it's just a matter of total caprice. But suddenly, because you, through total caprice, got a better card than the other guy next to you, you suddenly, for that brief moment of that hand, are better than he is. Do you ever see that happen in a card game? Do you ever watch people's face? Have you ever seen people almost get up and have fisticuffs over a card game? See, people are nodding. You ever seen families almost break up over Monopoly? It's true. I mean, literally, it's true. 
What do you have that makes you differ from another, and what do you have you didn't receive? Who gave you your brains? Your parents. So why are you proud? Who stretched the skin over your face the way it is stretched over your face? You didn't. Now, there may be one or two that have been to the cosmetic surgeon. I'm not sure about that, so I won't say anything about it. But that's not really your nose. But uh, most of us, I think, have been unrepaired. It's not my fault the way the skin is stretched over my face, and it's not your fault. And I've always thought about that because I thought, isn't it amazing how most of the time when you see someone that has been given a tremendous amount of physical, material beauty, they just seem to be utterly senseless in their brain, that they're like the individual walking along through the mirrors, and they're just so enraptured and enthralled with themselves. They think, oh, how pretty. There's nothing, you know, more absolutely like a standard ho-hum Hollywood scenario than the so-called dumb blonde. The Marilyn Monroe, you know, don't have a brain in their head. Uh, there was one that was kind of like a bunch of mafia, and there was this one gal I played. I think if I could just think of her, her name, I'd tell you. But she had this real high little squeaky voice, and she was a blonde and just absolutely didn't have a brain in her head. But then suddenly the guy that was abusing her and mistreating her found out she did have a brain, and she did something that really destroyed his business and put him in jail or whatever. Kind of a cute turning of the worm. But oftentimes... Just like the person in the card game that got dealt by total caprice, a better card than the person sitting next to him, people, through an accident of nature, because parents happen to come together with a certain amount of breeding, produce a child, boy or a girl, that had a certain amount of physical appearance and erect their lives. That's why it was so refreshing on these few occasions when you see someone who is absolutely beautiful or strikingly handsome and doesn't seem to know it. Isn't that refreshing? And it's so rare. And you find nearly always that the people whose skin is stretched over their face in kind of a different way than the Hollywood starlets, not ugly, not exactly like they've been proverbially beaten up with the ugly stick, as they say in East Texas, but, but not attractive, you know, just kind of everyday, mundane, not unpleasant looking, but not attractive. And oh, can they be wonderful people inside because they've not been distracted by every time they looked in the mirror tending to want to worship what they see. That's nice. If you received it, why do you glory as if you hadn't received it? That's a logical question. You receive your looks. You receive your physical body and your characteristics. It came from your parents. What's to be vain about? I learned a lesson in bowling one time. The guy's name was Don Martin. He was a champion on the circuit, and he came by in Pasadena, California. My brother-in-law, Vern Matson and I went down to the local bowling alley at noon. We got a lesson from him. For a certain amount of dollars, you could get a lesson from a champion. Well, before that time when I was bowling, I liked about a four-step running. Oh, man, did I love to try to, you know, just break the pins. I never could. I wasn't big enough or strong enough, but I'd take that ball clear to here, boy, and I mean, I'd back off there and get this look on my face. And you got to get your, your legs in a certain way, you know, kind of twist your body around. That ball would come up here, I'd run down there and skid to a stop and cub, wow. And then when it's going down and just it hits, I do this, as if my fist did that. I'm projecting my power the length of the court, smashing those pins. Don Martin came there and gave me a lesson. He said, no, 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 no. He said, just carry the ball from here. He said, shorten your step to just three steps. You need to really slow it down showed me how to hold the ball sideways a little bit and let it just kind of curve into the pocket. After he gave me about a 20-minute lesson, he went on his way, 
And I put in the back of my head, because he'd told me, quit being athletic about it. Don't be athletic. It's not an athletic game. It's just easy. Just roll the ball easy. So I told myself, stop trying to be an, a show-off athlete before every shot. Now, don't be a show-off athlete. Roll it down. Before or since, I have never bowled a better game. I told myself, take the vanity out of your game. Guess what I shot? Uh, 247. And the last four were all strikes. 247. I've never before or since bowled any better than the time I told myself, take the vanity out of your game. You know, that's kind of a thing that Don Martin taught me that can apply to life. Quit being puffed up. You do a lot better if you do it simply. Now you are full, he says. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. I would to God you did reign. We almost, almost, I'm sorry, also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us apostles last as it were appointed to death. We're made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. And he says... We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, and we are despised. They were filled with vanity. And if you follow along through this entire context, I won't read all of the rest of that, but notice he said, I warn you in verse 14, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers in Christ Jesus. I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be you followers of me. Now he said... For this cause I have sent Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which is in Christ, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. But now some are puffed up. Notice in verse 6 he said that one of you is puffed up, one or against another. And in verse 7, the last line, why do you glory, meaning filled with vanity? Why are you puffed up? Some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. Do you know that this letter was written so that it would actually get there and be read during this season of the year? And in the context, in the fifth chapter, that's absolutely proved. In chapter 5, verse 1, it's commonly reported there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. The commentaries think that means stepmother, but it may not. It may have meant real mother. We don't know. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. How can you be vain when you are laden with sin? Isn't it crazy that the more sin people seem to be carrying around in their bodies and minds, the more filled with vanity they can become. It just seems to be almost axiomatic. I can't stand some of these people I see on television. There's a guy, kind of a long face, about four bags under his eyes that comes on. My wife has watched a little bit of him, and she tells me about him, and she'll say, oh, watch this for just a minute. I'll say, I can't, I can't stand it. Because the guy is such an absolute, oh, he's just so absolutely vain. And he's, stand, he's sitting there forcing people, if you can do that, on TV. I know you've got money, and you better send it to me, because if you send me money, God's going to send you money. What a lie! What an absolute preposterous lie! Poor little people, shut-ins, looking desperately for entertainment for someone to relate to. And here's some guy shaking his head and doing all this. Better send me some money! And I guess people do it. The guy's rolling in dough. And here are little people 
went down to get the Social Security check. I wonder how much I ought to send Brother So-and-so. And he is ripping them off, and he's a liar, a fraud, a cheat, a crook, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not telling you his name, but I'll guarantee I, I know what his face looks like in my mind. What a ham actor. What a lying, cheating fraud. Vain? Man, I mean, he just exudes vanity, just pouring out of him. And I don't know what he knows about anything. He may have a 82 IQ. He may have 120 IQ. I haven't the faintest idea. I just know that he's filled with vanity and that he's a false prophet and not a true minister of God, but someone just trying to rip off the general public with a kind of a religious uh, motif. The Apostle Paul said, I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And then on in the fifth chapter where I was, he said, You are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such and one now chilling words the point of the sermon have you ever been in slavery well yes I was and perhaps to some little extent in our minds and lives in our habits our appetites our lusts our opinions our reactions our emotional responses maybe we still are during the days of unleavened bread we depict the fact that our forebears anciently came out of abject slavery through a time of testing and trial, and imbibed leaven, I should say manna, unleavened wafers, and we during this time imbibed for seven days unleavened bread to drink in of the body of Jesus Christ. You can read in great detail of that in the sixth chapter of the book of John. Waiting out there to capture us, just like the armies of Pharaoh that pursued the Israelites to the shores of the Red Sea and God thwarting them by parting the Red Sea as a symbol of baptism and then drowning them as a symbol of the sins that would captivate them that were left behind as dead now and gone, washed away in the waters. So when you are baptized, God intends that you walk in newness of life and you walk away from all of those old sins and appetites that were buried and you are walking in a brand new period of testing and trial until the time of the second coming of Christ. Here was an individual of whom Paul said he should be delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. To me that means venereal disease. It means cancer. It means disease. It means disfiguring disease. It means genital warps or warts or herpes. It means AIDS. It means whatever would be the natural consequence of the particular sins that he was committing. Destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, and Paul was not going to tolerate that kind of thing remaining in that congregation, leavens the whole lump. Now, here were people who had come out of a religion where there were bald temple prostitutes and where they could go to the steps 
of the temples, of Asclepios, of Diana the Ephesians, and could go through rituals that involved sexual activity that were supposed to be religious rituals. They had come out of that. They were in God's true church, but they were beginning to revert to their old ways. They'd begun to turn the Passover into a carnival, into a drunken orgy, and here was open incest being tolerated, and yet they were proud. They were vain. They were puffed up. Don't you know that a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump, purge out, therefore, the old leaven, spiritually, that you may be a new lump, spiritually, as you are unleavened. It would be absolute contradiction if he's saying you're unleavened, yet purge out the old leaven. So when he says, as you are unleavened, it meant here was a Gentile church in the late 50s, perhaps 60, 61 A.D., 30 years approximately after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, observing what? the annual holy days of the days of unleavened bread. As you are unleavened, he said, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, this feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I've asked it this way time and again on programs, television, and radio alike. Who is your boss? Who controls you? To whom do you owe allegiance? What possesses or controls your appetites? What makes you go where you go and do what you do and listen or see to what you listen and see and watch? Your appetites, your thought processes thinking of the vanity of youth, the vanity of middle age, the vanity of people who think they know a great deal and don't, the vanity of would-be prophetesses and prophets, the vanity of which we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity is that which inflates and, in, and puffs up and makes absolutely, as we say in Texas, all swolled up with vanity. The meaning of these days is to get rid of that vanity and to imbibe the simplicity that is in Christ. There was not one vain act, not one moment's pomposity, not one moment's display of superiority or hauteur, not a single supercilious look, not a gesture that your Savior ever made that would illustrate there was vanity or anything puffed up about him. He was plain, down-to-earth, ordinary, totally humble, giving, serving, helping, sharing, forgiving, tolerant of people, yet not afraid to tell them their sins and faults when he needed to, not engaging, charming, or handsome, plain, everyday, ordinary. He was the unleavened bread, the flat bread of life. Now, here we are in a world where the world is going crazy with Easter egg hunts, they learn absolutely nothing from bunnies and Easter eggs except procreation and ancient pagan symbols of life and fertility. And here I've shown you a little bit of the rich tapestry of typology in the ancient Passover and the Israelites in the wilderness, and that all these things are examples upon us, or to us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. When we partake of bread, we're partaking of the basic whole food that is the staff of life. That term is actually used in different languages for that very meaning. It is even used commonly for money. I need to go get me some bread, as people say. Because without it, we cannot live. We have to eat. 
And what we eat is what we become, what we are. Let us, as we eat today, this luncheon, make sure to reach for a piece of that flat unleavened bread. And even as we soberly took a little piece of unleavened bread at the Passover, and almost in fright and awe, tremblingly, chewed a little piece of it, realizing its deep significance, every day, seven days, as God's people, let us eat a piece of flat bread, humble pie, the bread of humility, and think, why should I do it the athletic way? Why not get rid of the vanity and roll my best score ever?